Welcome to the Active Listening Podcast. We are your hosts, Ariana and Alicia. We are sisters by marriage and great friends. Thanks for joining us as we learn and chat about life, discovering more about what it means to actively listen, and having a great time meeting new people. Today, we are thrilled to chat with Sheila Ray Gregoire. She is a wife, mom, and grandma living in Belleville, Ontario. She is a prolific author, has written nine books, hosts the Bear Marriage Podcast, and writes for her blog, To Love, Honor, and Vacuum. She is a kind and funny soul who is actively working to bring healing and understanding to couples on the topic of marriage and sex. She's been working to bring clarity on this topic for over 16 years. This is not an easy topic to talk about for a lot of people. In fact, it may cause feelings of discomfort and bad vibes to bubble to the surface unexpectedly. Perhaps you've never thought about how the teachings you received on marriage and sex have affected your relationships. Or you have, and there's a lot of shame associated with it. Let's sit with this discomfort and allow it to change us. Perhaps this conversation will provide greater insight or the words to say when you are in tough conversations with others. Our desire with these conversations is to share perspectives and stories of others while encouraging you to think for yourself. May we continue to lean into empathy and kindness, seeing each other as complete humans, regardless of differences. And while we're at it, may we continue to love well. So join us as we chat about marriage and sex, the great sex rescue. Well, welcome to the podcast, everybody. We are your hosts, Ariana. And I'm Alicia. And we're sisters by marriage and great friends. So thank you for joining us as we learn and chat about life, discovering more of what it means to actively listen and just having a great time meeting new people. So today we are thrilled to chat with Sheila Ray Gregoire. She's a wife, mom, and grandma living in Belleville, Ontario. She's a prolific author, has written nine books. I think so. I don't know. I think so. <laughs> Something like that. Hosts the Bear Marriage podcast and writes for her blog, To Love, Honor, and Vacuum. Sheila is a kind and funny soul who is actively working to bring healing and understanding to couples on the topic of marriage and sex alongside her husband and daughters, which is so cool. She's been working to clarify this topic for over 16 years. So thank you so much for joining us, Sheila. Yeah, it's great to be here. Yeah, wonderful. So we're going to jump right in and tell us a little bit about what life was like for you growing up and how that played a part in shaping your view of the world. Um, I grew up with a single mom. So I always had daddy issues. You know? <laughs> I always had like mm-hmm. that sense of, of rejection and I probably wanted to get married more than I should have. Um, yeah. You know, like I needed we that. We get that. Yep. <laughs> I needed someone to complete me kind of thing. Um, but so that was the negative part of it. The positive was I, I really had very strong women in my family um, mm-hmm. and I've always been surrounded by strong women and I've never had the feeling that I'm less than because I'm a woman or that my career plans need to change because I'm a woman or anything. I mean, I did stay home with my kids, but that was always a choice um, right. that I was allowed mm-hmm. to make. And so uh, I never felt like God saw me as someone less than my husband. That's good. Mm-hmm. That's awesome to hear that you have that foundation so you were able to go into your marriage and your career with that understanding of the world, that's really mm-hmm. helpful and not what I'm not a lot of people, especially those in evangelical circles, necessarily start out with. Yeah. So that's really good to hear. I'm actually just so curious how um, someone gets into the business of teaching on others how to have a healthy sex life. 
And I would love if you could share um, what led you to this point of wanting to break down all the stigmas around sexuality and marriage. Yeah, what in your journey brought you here? And was there a defining moment um, that helped spark the passion for you? Um, well, I've been I've been writing about marriage since 2008. So I started out mommy blogging. Well, I actually started writing for magazines before that. And I had a couple of small books out in the early 2000s. So I would write when my kids took naps um, when they were very small. Um, we homeschooled and I wrote some books then. Uh, so when they were small, I was doing some writing, but not a lot. And then as they got to high school age, I started a blog and I wrote mostly marriage, parenting, housework. I was writing a local column in our newspaper, did that for 12 years. Um, but it was really focused just on general slice of life stuff. But what I found was that the more I talked about sex, the more my traffic grew on the blog. And at <laughs> the same time, my husband and I were speaking at marriage conferences and he's a doctor, so he'll talk about anything. And yeah no one ever wanted to do the sex talk. So we always got slotted into the sex talk. So we got quite good at giving the sex talk. Hmm. And when I was looking um, at writing a big book in 2012, my agent said, well, why don't you do one on sex? Because that's something that we can sell. So I never intended to be the Christian sex lady because that's a super weird thing to do. Um, (laughs) It really was more just that there was this void. And I found that the more I spoke into it, the more people paid attention. So it wasn't intentional at all. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that and, makes sense. Yeah, and we saw um, recently, I don't know, I think Leash saw it in your most recent book, that you mentioned that you were not planning on getting into the the breaking down of stigmas necessarily that you found after you had already been a part of this world, this Christian sex education, basically, that you saw all the negative aspects Mm -hmm. of what people were writing and all the books that were being sold about this. Because you, let me know if I'm wrong on this or not, but you purposefully didn't read other people's work. Yeah. To to not affect what you were writing and teaching. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I was always so afraid of plagiarism. Like when I was in university, they were always talking against plagiarism. And so I was always afraid of taking someone's ideas. So I didn't read any books. So here I am, I'm blogging. I read a lot of research, like I read a lot of secular stuff. I read a lot of journal articles, but I didn't read any Christian books. And I'm speaking at marriage conferences. We're surrounded by all these Christian books. I'm recommending Christian books because Mm -hmm. I'm told, hey, they love Jesus. I love Jesus. We're both talking about Mm -hmm. sex. We must be saying the same thing. Um, and you know, I'm, so I wrote the good girl's guide to great sex in 2012. I've since revised it. The new, the new version's coming up next month, but I wrote it back in 2012. I wrote 31 days to great sex, created an orgasm course, a libido course. I'm present, I'm I'm creating all this positive information and everyone still has the same issues. Yeah. And it's like Mm -hmm. I, I, there was a wall that I couldn't break down and I kept getting all of these emails. And then one day it was, it was January, 2019. So just about three years ago. I just had a migraine. I was procrastinating and I was on Twitter and people were fighting about love and respect. Um, There was a bunch of women saying, I need respect, not just love. And they were referring to the book Love and Respect by Emerson Egrich, where the thesis is that women need love, but men need respect. And I thought, yeah, I need respect too. I don't just need love. And then I realized I did have that book upstairs, but I'd never (laughs) read it. So I went and got it. And of course, being the sex person, I I turned to the sex chapter, which is in the section of the book where it's like what wives do for husbands. So it's already framed as something for Mm -hmm. husbands. And I open it up and he says, if your husband is typical, he has a need you don't have. So men need sex and women don't. That the need is for physical release. So sex is all about his ejaculation. 
Um, why would you deprive him of something which takes so little time and makes him so happy? And you're not supposed to say no. And I'm I'm FaceTiming my daughter and uh, another person who works for me on the blog, and I'm just going nuts. Like I read the paragraph, and I'm like, "Holy cow! What is going on? Like, yeah. Yeah. what is going on? Because this was the best selling marriage book, other than the Five Love Languages." Um, and over we wrote a series on it the next week on the blog, and we had hundreds of women write in to us saying that that book enabled abuse in their marriage. So we created a report. Well, Joanna, who works for me, who's a statistician, created a report. We sent it to Focus on the Family, who publishes it, and they ignored us. Hmm. And so we thought, okay, (laughs) you can ignore several hundred, but can you ignore 20,000? And so we decided Mm -hmm. that we would just do the biggest research project that's ever been done. And we would measure how do the things that we're teaching in evangelical books affect women's sexual and marital satisfaction? Mm-hmm. And how bad is it out there, really? And mm-hmm. that's, that's, what, that's what became The Great Sex Rescue. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And it, I'm already getting a little worked up hearing even just some of those lines from the book because it, it just, yeah, it, cause, it can cause so much harm when people mm-hmm. believe that. And yeah, just that men need sex and women don't. They should submit that they should give their husband sex whenever he wants it. And even saying, if she doesn't, that he will fulfill his need elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And if he does cheat on you, well, it's your fault for not giving him what he needed at home. And just that's written in these books. And it yeah. is just so wild to me that people believe this and teach this. Um, and it just... Same as in purity culture, the emphasis is mostly put on the woman to be the one to do all the work in this. And in your experience and in um, getting the results back from your survey, um, what was the outcome of this way of teaching? How did you find that it affected the women you talked to positively, negatively? Can you expand on your survey? Yeah. So what we did was we we had three big parts of the survey. So we asked, first of all, all kinds of questions about marital satisfaction. And then we got super up close and personal and asked all kinds of questions about sex. And it was seriously personal and awkward. And then we presented them with all of these different teachings. And we said, did you ever believe these or were you ever taught them at two different points in time? So before you were married and, and now. And from that, we were able to, to compare women who did believe something with women who didn't believe it and see if it affected marital or sexual satisfaction. So we had a couple of different outcome variables. Like we were looking at how does it affect orgasm rates? How does it affect your ability to get aroused? How does it affect sexual pain? How does it affect whether or not you feel emotionally close during sex? How does it affect your marital satisfaction? So we were looking at all of these different things. And what we found is that a lot of these teachings seriously harmed both our sexual mm-hmm. outcome variables and our marital outcome variables. So they're making things worse. Mm-hmm. Our yeah. best sellers mm-hmm. in many cases are making things worse. And when I say evangelical teachings, I don't mean biblical teachings. <laughs> right. I really want to stress yeah. this. And this yeah. is one of the big things that, that, that we did in The Great Sex Rescue is we showed, no, they might be teaching this, but it's not from the Bible. It's, it's, it's something mm-hmm. that we have put and we have put Christian language to it. But it's not biblical. Yeah. And that's why we're hurting people. Oh, man. The amount of hurt that comes from this is just unbelievable. What do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions that have 
been a result of this kind of teaching? Yeah, so we met, we found four big ones that we looked in the book. There were others. There were others yeah. that harmed um, sex and marriage, but there were four really big ones that we studied in detail because um, they had the most effects. And I would say that there's there's a teaching that's kind of over them all, like kind of like the Lord of the Rings analogy, like one ring to bind them all, you know. Yeah. Um, but the teaching that's over them all is that idea, if your husband is typical, he has a need you don't have. So it's seeing sex through the male lens. Sex is a male entitlement. Sex is something that she gives him. So he takes sex and she gives it. It's yeah. not something they share together. It's not something that's intimate. It's something that she gives and he takes because he needs it. And that's kind of the way that it's framed over and over and over again in our bestsellers. If she, she yeah, sure, she might enjoy it. She might want it, but not the way he does. Not in mm-hmm. any way that she will ever be able to understand. Um, and the, And then from that, we measured four specific beliefs um, that, that had negative repercussions. And one of them, for instance, the idea that all men struggle with lust, it's every man's battle, right? So mm-hmm. it's the equating of the objectification of women with the male sex mm-hmm. drive, right? So mm-hmm. God created men to objectify women. That's really the way it's phrased. Like the the book series, Every Man's Battle, which has sold like 4 million copies or something insane like that, said, you know, we see a reason for sexual sin. We got there naturally simply by being male. It's because we're male. And it says that in Every Young Man's Battle too. So the, the book that we're, that we're teaching young teenage boys, it's like, you're going to sin because you're a boy. Right. And it's just not destined just, to fail right from the get-go. Yeah. And even books that have been written since The Great Sex Rescue, like Married Sex by Gary Thomas, he quotes a discredited neuroscientist saying that men have sexual thoughts flickering through their through their brains at all times, so that so much so they're ready to they're always ready to seize a sexual opportunity. Like this is the way they're describing what men are like. And I just it's need so to point crazy. out we believe that Jesus was fully male. So do they really think that Jesus was always at the ready to seize a sexual opportunity? Yeah, right. Or do you not think Jesus was fully male? Like, which one is it? You know? And so many times I think when I read these things that, like you said, these aren't based out of facts half the time or biblical truth either. It feels like sometimes these are being talked about from people's personal experience or what they wish they weren't like. And then Mm -hmm. making it feel like, oh, this is the way that everybody should be fighting against this. Yeah. When that's not true or mm-hmm. accurate at all for most people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, you know, we've just finished a survey of men. Um, and that's coming out in our book, The Good Guy's Guide to Great Sex, which releases in March. But, you know, what we found is they say that it's every man's battle, right? And when we asked men, 75% of men agree that they do have a daily struggle with lust. So it's not 100%. So it's already not every man. But when you drill down on those 75%, almost half of them do not watch porn. So they don't have a problem with porn. They don't lust in a variety of situations that we ask them about. They show no signs of lusting. They do not have intrusive thoughts of women or porn, past porn use or anything going through their brains at any time. So they show no signs of lusting whatsoever. And... We think what's going on is that we have conflated noticing a woman is beautiful with lusting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
And we've put so much shame on a lot of guys that they they feel trapped. They feel like I am lusting merely by existing when they're not. And we need to have a much better conversation about this. Like noticing someone is attractive is not lusting. Right. And now both of them have negative connotations because of the way that we've described it to people to think that this is the only way that it can be. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this way of teaching is not helpful for men or women. Like it's not helpful for anyone. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Which is why then I guess you see the hurt that comes in marriages and why couples struggle to communicate effectively about this because you don't know the words to say. You don't know exactly Mm -hmm. what you're feeling. And if it is only a certain word like lust that you think that you're using, then that automatically is triggering and makes people think Mm -hmm. one specific thing. And that just sets everything off on a bad route right off the get-go. So do you have some tips of how we can communicate well about these things like as a couple and using communication and words and terminology that is more helpful and brings more clarity as a couple talking about sex. Yeah, well, I first of all, let's go back to what Jesus said. He said, whoever looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery. So two things to notice there. Looking is a deliberate action. So it's a deliberate action combined with a deliberate mindset with lust. Mm-hmm. That's what the problem is. So noticing is not a deliberate (laughs) action. (laughs) It's not a deliberate mindset. Seeing is not a deliberate mindset. And, um, And the problem is that the way that we have treated lust or the the solution to lust has actually just been to solidify the problem of lust. Because the essential problem with the lust mindset is that it sees women as objects. And so what is the solution that the church has given us? It's women need to cover up Mm -hmm. and men need to bounce their eyes so they don't look. Yeah. Right? So that just devalues women. It devalues women. And and even if we're covering women up, and I'm not saying women should all go out bearing things, but seriously, if you wear what people normally wear in society, it's not a problem. Like, just, just stop all of this nonsense. Okay, so if women need to totally cover up and if men need to bounce their eyes then both things see women as threats. We are the threats, which is so interesting because it's women who are getting sexually assaulted and yet women are the ones who are seen as the, we are the threats to the men. Yeah, just by existing. (laughs) The way to get over lust is not to bounce your eyes and it's not for women to cover up. It's it's to choose to see women as whole people. Mm -hmm. Jesus did not refuse to look at women. Jesus chose to truly see women women and one of my favorite things that jesus ever said was you know this woman is washing his feet and he looks at the pharisees and he says do you see this woman like that is such a profound question yeah. you know do you see this woman mm-hmm. do you see her for more than just what she looks like exactly and mm-hmm. that's the way to overcome lust is to treat women as whole people made in the image of god and that that empowers both men and women to go forward. So like, and the other, but the other issue that we haven't even got to is yeah. by framing There's lust a as a male issue, we forget yeah. that women can have issues with sexual temptation as well. And women can be very visual too. And so, you know, when we're talking to our teenagers, instead of saying like every, you know, lust is every man's battle, let's just simply say, you know what? A lot of people struggle with lust. You right. know, mm-hmm. often guys sometimes more than girls, but a lot of girls struggle with it too. 
mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but it is not a lifetime battle. It is not something you can't defeat. And the way to defeat it is to learn to respect other people as whole people made in the image of God. Right. Yeah, that's so good. Yeah. Well, and that's what often is a tripping up point for people and women too, in regards to understanding their sexuality and knowing what it is to orgasm or anything like that, because we aren't really taught that it's okay for us to have that experience, to have those thoughts, to be a sexual being, because we're told that we are a threat or we are or we don't need block. it because it's men. It's for men. So yeah. Mm-hmm. So then, if you us. do have those desires, then you, as a woman, then you are, you feel bad, like something's wrong with you because you've been taught your whole life that you shouldn't have those because it's only for men. And so mm-hmm. then, yeah, you feel bad, and then going into marriage, then yeah, things can just seem wrong or out of whack because you feel like you you feel shame for feeling anything. That was yeah. definitely something that was something that my husband and I had to work through in the early years of our marriage because I felt like I'm not one of the normal ones because I maybe want this more than other people that I have talked to do. And so I didn't know how to navigate that at first to be like, oh, this normal is a very large spectrum. Yeah, (laughs) there is no normal for this. It's you got to talk about this and communicate as a couple what works between the two of you, not what anybody else is doing or talking. <laughs> yeah. And that it is on a spectrum and that you and your spouse will be at different points, at different points in your life too. Mm-hmm. And that it can ebb and flow and change and to just communication needs to be a big part of that so that you can figure out what works for the two of you together. Yeah, exactly. And and we need to not see sex as something which which you know, he's always going to want it more because that isn't true. You know, <laughs> like yeah. that's how almost all of our evangelical resources are written. Like women, your yeah. responsibility is to have sex more because he wants it so much. Um, we're told the 72 hour rule, right? You got to have sex every 72 uh, yeah, hours. That's, we read that in your book. We're just like, oh my goodness. And just hearing about the couple that found out like they, the wife did that. And like 20 years later, they actually had a conversation about it. And he was like, I didn't actually need it that often. And just because she had read it somewhere, then she thought that was how it should be. And then that just like influences your whole life for so long when it doesn't actually need to be that way. Exactly. Like, it's like, what do you actually want? Because we found that, you know, 58% of men, yes, they have the higher sex drive. But 23% it's shared, and in 19%, she has the higher sex drive. And I want to point out, too, that that's actually lower than the general population. Because what we found is that a lot of these evangelical teachings artificially lower women's libidos. And if we hadn't been given these teachings in the first place, you would see more women with higher sex drives or more sex drives that were shared. So, you know, we have have artificially lowered women's libidos, but even in that artificially lowering, we still have 19% who who (laughs) want sex more than their husbands. Um, And and that's a terrible place to be. Like I've, I've had so many letters from women saying, we really struggled for the first few years of our marriage. Like we had to seek counseling. My husband felt like he wasn't enough of a man because he only wanted it once a week. And I felt like so undesirable. And I was, you know, and there was nothing wrong. It's Mm -hmm. just that they had been told their whole life, he is going to be insatiable and he is going to be after you constantly. And when that didn't happen, they felt like they were both broken. Yeah, right. Exactly. 
And so then there's just so many broken people walking around. It's so sad. It is so sad. It is it is heartbreaking, actually. Yeah. Because it can be an exciting thing for you as a couple to experience together. But yeah, when it's not talked about well in a way that's actually like healthy for both parties, then it just, again, creates so much shame and guilt for, mm-hmm. for many different reasons. And mm-hmm. even you talk about like... Part of the orgasm gap is because we don't talk to women about them actually having a sexual drive, then there or like a libido, we don't give them any help or men any also um, resources for helping women to orgasm, and mm-hmm. so we don't actually help them in any way. And so again, if if women aren't ex- feeling anything in the bedroom, then why would they want to do it more? Um, You talk about the need to redefine the word sex and how the way we commonly think about sex actually contributes to the orgasm gap. Can you explain to us what exactly the orgasm gap is and what that means and how that actually affects a relationship? Okay, so what we found is that 95% of men almost always or always reach orgasm in a sexual encounter. And the equivalent number for women is just over 48%. So we have a 47-point orgasm gap. Okay, that's huge. Like, that's a really big deal. And a lot of that, I think, does stem from how we define sex. Because if you ask someone, like, if you're super creepy and you ask someone, did you have sex last night, which is a terrible thing to ask. But, like, what they think you're asking is something along the lines of, like, did he put his penis into her vagina, move around to, like, we're we're defining it as intercourse. We think that's what sex is. Mm -hmm. But of the women who do reach orgasm, very few reach orgasm through intercourse alone. Like there's other routes that are much more reliable. You know, Mm -hmm. intercourse Mm -hmm. is not the end all and be all for women. And when we define sex as only intercourse, and then that's the big thing that you're supposed to save for marriage, right? This is the big, big thing. And then you get to finally have sex, meaning have intercourse. And then you do, and intercourse feels a lot better for a guy in general. It feels better easier for a guy in general than it does Mm -hmm. for a woman. I'm not saying you can't orgasm through intercourse. We have an orgasm course that helps you do that. And, and, you know, (laughs) some women never, but it's not necessary. Okay. If you can orgasm in other ways, that's fine. It doesn't matter. (laughs) Like, like seriously, but, but when he does and she doesn't, and, and remember that most men can orgasm in like two to three minutes. Now, Thankfully, most men can also take longer if they try. But if they don't try to last, they can orgasm in two to three minutes, whereas most women take far longer. And Mm -hmm. so we're just designed to take longer. But if we're not training couples that you need to figure out her arousal cycle, you need to figure out her sexual response cycle, then they can get married. They can have intercourse. It feels nothing for her. And they just assume she's not sexual. Right. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. she thinks, I must be broken. And right. remember, like in Shanti Feldon's book, for, for Women Only, for instance, she says that what men really need to know is that you're enthusiastic about this and that you want to do this with them. So, so she says, like, while you're having sex, let your words be heart words, like affirm him and adore him, even if you can't physically respond. And then later, she says, if you can't physically respond, see a counselor. So if you're not feeling good, you should see a counselor. But the number one reason that women don't feel good during sex that we found. The number one reason that women don't orgasm is lack of foreplay. That that is the biggest reason. But by saying see a counselor, we're implying, we're still implying there's something wrong with her. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know? And I'm not saying that there, there can't be a things like, if you've been a victim of sexual assault, you know, please see a licensed trauma therapist. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, not just a counselor from your church, but someone who is trained in evidence-based trauma therapies. Um, or if you've got relationship issues, like there's lots of things that can hold women back from orgasm. And often you do need a counselor. I'm just saying it shouldn't be the first thing we assume. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, and with a lot of teachings for young people, they're not taught to go and learn about these things. Like these things are bad and you will feel shame and somehow it's sinful to want to know about how the female body works or how the male body works or what even parts of the reproductive system are called and what the genitalia, like what all the different parts are. We aren't taught that. So then we don't know what to do with it. (laughs) Like we don't know how to create arousal and things like that most of the time because we don't even know what they do, (laughs) Mm -hmm. right? Like, I know that was part of my experience, and that was something that I had to learn alongside my husband is just, yeah, go and research this stuff. Like, find out how your body works, like all of it, like the menstrual cycle and how Mm -hmm. you are respond sexually and, like, all of that stuff. Like, there is a lot to it that we are just not taught. Yeah, totally. And I, the same, had to learn a lot later on in life, like when we were engaged and married, because I didn't learn any of that before. I didn't know any of it. And I felt like I was bad to want to learn about anything before. So I was just like, well, nope, I'm not going to learn about any of it. We'll figure it out later. And that just is not actually super healthy for people. I am really curious, though, what your thoughts are on having sex before marriage and what you think about that idea because you did mention in your book too that a lot of times it's in the pre-marriage like the engaged stage where a couple does feel strongly attracted to each other and like the arousal Mm -hmm. and everything is there but then it's like going from zero to a hundred all of a sudden on your wedding night and it just doesn't work because Mm -hmm. the arousal is not there. Um, Mm -hmm. I would like to know a little bit more about what your thoughts are on sex before marriage. Yeah, I mean, I do ascribe to biblical sexual ethic in that I think that I think that sex is 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 meant for marriage. There's a bunch of questions there though. Like what is marriage? I know that yeah. <laughs> I know that's a funny question, but like if you look in New Testament times, Joseph had to divorce Mary or was thinking about divorcing Mary and they weren't married yet. They were only engaged. Right. 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 Um, so it's like things meant different things back then. So it's not as clear cut as we may think. And um, what I'm all about is what does the research say? So uh, this is a stat that isn't in The Great Sex Rescue. It's in our upcoming books, The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex and The Good Guy's Guide to Great Sex. But we, we looked at couples where they had only ever had sex with each other. So no yeah. other sexual partners. And we controlled for abuse. So that wasn't a factor. And what we found is that if you wait for the wedding, you're 25% more likely to experience vaginismus, which is a sexual dysfunction where um, she experiences a lot of pain with sex because the the muscles in the vaginal wall contract and just can't can't relax. I am not saying that that means that everybody should have sex before they're married. But I Mm -hmm. am saying that we need to totally rethink how we think about the honeymoon. Because if you think about couples who have sex before they're married, why do they have sex? They have sex because they've been watching a romantic movie and then they made out for an hour and they got really steamy and hands began to wander and then it just kind of happened. Yeah. That's often what what goes on. So you've been really affectionate. You've had this nice night together. You're all hot and steamy. She's aroused and it happens. But what often happens on the wedding night 
is first of all, you're totally exhausted because oh, this yeah. has been the yep. biggest day of your life. You probably didn't sleep the night before. It's been the most stressful period of your life, or at least one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have a huge obligation message put on yeah. you. Like now you need to have sex. So it's not like you're having sex because you're you're passionate about each other or <laughs> any mm-hmm. of that. It's like, okay, here we are in the hotel room. So now we have to have sex. It's not like anything that is, <laughs> you know, right. romantic. Or anything. And, and often she's not aroused. Yeah. And then, and then sex just doesn't work very well. And I think that's one of the big reasons. And so what we're trying to argue for is on the honeymoon, there's a threefold aim. Okay. First of all, just get comfortable. Yeah. That's it. Yep. Just get comfortable being naked. You know, take then a shower. Aim, yeah. Have a bath. Get a, get a hotel room with a jacuzzi. If you're going to spend yeah. money on anything, get out. You know, yeah. you know, then, then aim for her arousal. So figure out how to get her aroused and then have intercourse. So like yeah. in that order. And some people can do that in one night and some people it takes several weeks. You know, it doesn't matter, but do it in that order and you're going to set yourself up for a lot of decades of great sex. But if you shortchange it, you could have a lot of decades of a lot of awkwardness and not very good sex. Yeah. And that just sets the whole thing off on a mm-hmm. bad foot, especially if your very first experience or your first ideas of it with this person are painful. Yeah. Okay. Now I really want to know, because you are a part of teaching this with your husband and with your daughters. They're all a part of this with you. So I am really curious how you communicated this with your daughters as they were growing up in a way that made them feel safe and not a sense of shame so that they felt like they could communicate about this alongside you. Well, it's funny because we laugh at how terrible a job I did telling them about puberty and <laughs> yeah. sex. Like I really did. I did a very bad job. Um, and Sometimes the fields we're the most skilled in were the worst at communicating for ourselves. Yeah. Um, and it's funny because since then they, they created, or all of us did together, but it was mostly them. They created a puberty course for moms to share with their daughters, like That's talking great. about sex and puberty and everything. Um, so I can give you the link to that if you want to put it in your show notes. That's it's awesome. really great. Yeah. We, we also, we've since made a, a male version of it that, that dads can share with their sons. So, um, But then The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex, my, my first sex book came out when Rebecca was 17 and Katie was 15. And by that time, we were talking about stuff a lot better right, <laughs> than when yeah. they were 10. And they were much more used to this. And that was a weird thing for them because all the guys wanted to be their friends now because oh, their mom... Yeah. You know, so that was a little bit, that was the weirdest part for them. But um, what's happened since is all of their friends come to them for advice. Like they just Mm -hmm. assume you guys must know everything about sex. So it's really (laughs) funny. Like they become the people that everyone goes to. Um, After Rebecca, my my oldest, graduated from university, she ended up coming onto the blog and working for me because she wanted a job she could do from home. And she's got two little kids now, which is wonderful. and so she's a big help. And she ended up co-authoring The Great Sex Rescue with me. Mm-hmm. She she does, she does did psychometrics, so she, survey design. She's really okay. good at that. So it oh, was wonderful. Cool. Yeah, um, very helpful. And, and she's a co-host on our podcast. Um, and then my husband, of course, is on the podcast as well. And my son-in-law, Rebecca's husband often is. Katie isn't, Katie, her face isn't on the, the ministry as much. She edits our stuff, but she, just, she lives in a different city. So She gets to hear um, it all the time, though. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but 
you know, what we like to joke is that we talk about the facts, we talk about the data and the research, but we don't ever say anything personal. So I have no idea what she and Connor do in the bedroom and they have no idea what we do. But we can talk about orgasm rates and and all, you know, Mm -hmm. we can talk about the research and it's not a problem. We just never get personal. So yeah, (laughs) Yeah. makes sense. So then how, I guess... Do you regret the way that you taught your daughters when they were little about this? And how would you do it differently now? Oh, yeah. But the thing thing is, you don't need to be perfect. This is what parents need to understand is it's okay to totally mess up as long as when you mess up, you admit it. And you yeah. just laugh about it. And you're willing it. to talk about it later. Yeah. Yeah. Like I took, I, for Rebecca, um, we did the passport to, pur- to purity that, that Family Life puts out when she was 10. I took her away on a weekend and it was just so bad. And, oh, no. and I only ended up doing like four out of the seven CDs because I'm like, I am That's not going to make a 10 year old pledge to stay pure until she's married. Because at this point I could get her to pledge to never kiss a boy because she was so grossed out. I just felt like it was emotional manipulation. Yeah. Um, right, right. Yep. And uh, all they really needed was the facts. She just needed to understand what a period was, why she was getting breasts, um, how her body worked, and all that other stuff needed to wait until she actually was interested, you know, like, right. so, so more like 12, not 10. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah. if you're talking about it, like it's really normal and just a part of regular life I feel like that's a little bit of an easier segue into all the different phases of puberty and learning about Mm -hmm. sexuality because instead of getting it all dumped on you at one time yeah and even seeing it as an ongoing process an ongoing chat with your kids as as opposed to just a one-time okay here's your sex talk and then never bring it up again and just hope for the best yeah but you can totally do it badly and then it's it's fine. Like, I think that's parents need to know that kids yeah. don't mind if things are awkward. They really don't. They just want to talk to you. So you can even right. say, mm-hmm. okay, this is totally awkward. I know you don't want to talk about this. I don't either. But you need to know this. And so here, just listen to me for a minute. Like, that's fine. <laughs> kids are fine yeah. with that. <laughs> and then it's like, okay, and now when you're like older, and you want to get married, maybe we can talk about it again, but eh, only if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is so great. So far, thank you. This is wonderful. Okay, now I would really love to know about your journey with this in regards to a lot of the vitriol and negative messaging that you have received personally in regards to the things that you're sharing and the stigmas that you are working to break down, especially when you do your corrections of <laughs> of writings that have been published and you change it to be mm-hmm. more positive and more effective. Um, have you lost connections and friendships because of the things that you are now teaching and how has it affected you? Yeah, I've lost huge ones. Um, so before I started doing this, like I was actually getting quite well known in the evangelical community. Um, the good guy, the good girl's guide to great sex was selling quite well. Um, I had been on focus on the family, their radio show three times. Um, I was really good friends with Gary Thomas. I actually thought Gary was going to write the forward to great sex rescue. Um, and so I did send the book to him and he read it, but he didn't like it. He okay. he didn't agree with what I said about lust and um, hmm. he didn't agree with calling out other authors. And, you know, so he distanced himself from me after that. Um, I was good friends with Shanti Felden and it was just, it was one of those things. I had never really read her books. I assumed, I assumed hmm. what she said was good. I, I came across her at a bunch of conferences we were at. Um, we were we were talking the same sphere, so you know we used to guest post for each other. Um, but 
her books met our inclusion criteria for our study. Like we we had very strict inclusion criteria. So we were going to do this like an academic study. And yeah. so we were looking at the 10 best-selling marriage books for women. And when we went on Amazon and we looked at the 10 best-selling for women only was like number six or something. <laughs> so we had to include it. Um, I couldn't not include it because I knew her, you know? Mm, right. Yeah. Um, and when we read it, it was one of the worst. Yeah. Mm. And so I had to say that. And we reached out to her before the book was published. We said, look, um, you know, we found harmful messages in a number of your books. And here's the data. Like when people believe that all men struggle with lust, it's every man's battle. Here is the terrible effects it has. You know, when people. So we gave her all of the the data and um, and she just she just said she didn't believe she taught that. And then after the book came out, she put out quite a scathing statement where um, she said that I wasn't following the kingdom way by going public, that I wasn't being kingdom-like, along with some other things. And she uh, has also gone, you know, after I've been on certain podcasts, she's contacted those podcasts to lambaste them. She's, She's talked behind the scenes with a number of other authors trying to figure out what to do about me. We've had lawsuit threats from a number of, of the people that we've critiqued, which is laughable. They can't, what are they going to sue us for? Um, you're allowed to critique <laughs> it's in their people. Book, you know? so. yeah. Like they yeah. wrote it. Yeah. Um, Focus on the Family wrote a statement where they actually lied about me, so that was interesting. Um, oh, dear. Uh, yeah, so it's just, it's it's... And, and I think what's been the hardest is Christianity Today really hasn't done a book review or talked about the book. The big organizations haven't, the big media outlets haven't really covered it. And no author that we critique has has grappled with anything, has said publicly, yeah, you know, maybe we, we said something wrong. Mm-hmm. And in fact, Gary Thomas, who did read The Great Sex Rescue, wrote a book since then, which perpetuates a lot of the things that we found were harmful. And that that was that was really hard. Yeah. Yeah. That was- um, but all that being said, the book is selling really well. And every day I get notes from women for whom it's set people free. Like, seriously, if you're listening yeah. to this, please, if you don't believe me, I want you to do one thing. Go to Amazon, <laughs> click on The Great Sex Rescue, and just read the reviews. Like, yeah. mm-hmm. just read the reviews. Um, we have a copy if anyone would also like to yes. borrow it because... Yeah. We love it too, and we love what you have said. And as yeah. we definitely want people to buy it and to support you. But if someone is feeling like I can't do that this time, we can definitely yeah. share it with you. Reach out to us because we definitely we very strongly believe in this message of setting yeah. people free from all this toxic um, beliefs that are out mm-hmm. there that people have been believing for so long. So we we thank you so much for the work that you are doing in this and in setting people free. I know in a lot of these books, a lot of the advice about sex has focused mostly on frequency, too, and the importance of prioritizing sex. And I know this can be like the wrong approach, especially for women who um, experience pain or don't experience anything or think something is wrong um, with them. How do you think this teaching has contributed to um, problems for women specifically? Yeah. So and, and no matter what you read, that that's the big problem everyone's trying to solve is how do we get women to have more sex? Because the big problem is you have libido differences. We've got to bridge the libido differences. And so that's how we often see sexual problems as somebody wants it more than someone else. But we found that if a woman has high marital satisfaction, if she feels emotionally close during sex, if she frequently reaches orgasm, if um, there's no porn use in the marriage, 
And if there's no sexual dysfunction, frequency almost always takes care of itself. And so frequency is not the problem. Frequency is a symptom of something else. And when we teach, when we treat frequency like it's the problem, what we're essentially doing is erasing her needs and erasing Mm -hmm. her experience. And we need, if if frequency is an issue, we need to start asking why, what's really going on? And it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with him necessarily. Like it could be her that's experiencing sexual dysfunction. And so she needs room to get that treated. It could be that the reason she doesn't feel emotionally close during sex is not because of her husband, but because of all this crap she's internalized her whole life. Mm -hmm. And she just needs some, you know, she just needs to work on that. So I'm not saying it's his fault. I'm just saying it's not about frequency. (laughs) And so if, if we want sex to be this holistic thing where it's intimate and it's mutual and it's pleasurable for both, we need to look at the underlying stuff that's going on and not treat the symptom. Mm-hmm. And that's where we've really gone wrong. Yeah. Well, we're going to bring this to a close really soon, but I just have a couple more questions for you. Um, what is one final piece of advice that you would give to someone starting out on the road to dismantling some of these past beliefs or just learning healthy sexuality? What would you say to them? I think the biggest thing is we need to stop seeing sex like an entitlement. Mm-hmm. for yeah. men that's that was the most harmful um teaching that we found and it's really the root of a lot of harm is this idea that a woman is obligated to give her husband sex when he wants it when we see sex as an entitlement it changes the very nature of sex for her and for him mm-hmm. yeah because if sex is supposed to be this intimate knowing then you have to have two people who are sharing each other Right. And sharing themselves. And how can you share yourself if what you want doesn't matter? Because if you have to give him sex, no matter what's going on with you, then you don't matter. Yeah. And so sex is no longer a knowing, it's actually an owing. It's an erasing of who you are as a person. Yeah. And so we need to get rid of that entitlement obligation mindset first. And Mm -hmm. just see sex as this journey of really knowing each other and experiencing each other at a different level. I think that's the first big mindset shift that makes the biggest difference. Yeah, totally. And being able to talk about it too, talk about all the aspects of it and Mm -hmm. what phase of life you're in and how you are feeling. Mm -hmm. Like there's so much that goes along with it, not just the act of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. My final question for you is what brings you joy what do you love and what gives you hope for the future to keep you grounded um okay well what brings me jo- i knit i knit all the time yes, i've <laughs> seen that and they are pretty epic pieces that you- <laughs> yeah it's amazing <laughs> i have on knit socks right now but i don't know if i can show the camera um <laughs> so no i love knitting and that that gives me a lot of joy um I think what gives me hope, honestly, is just the next generation. Everyone talks about millennials and Gen Gen Zs like they're um, snowflakes and awful and don't try and all that. But I think that the younger generation is going to be the change makers because the younger generation yeah. is not going to put up with this crap. Like really, right. <laughs> yeah. Like mm-hmm. like they can see this is insane. How did we ever mm-hmm. let these books get to be bestsellers? And. Uh, I think that's what's giving me hope is I really feel like something happened. And I don't know if it was like COVID and the shutdowns and people not being able to go to church and so paying more attention online or Mm. what happened, but it seems like the tide has turned and 
more and more people are talking about this in a healthy way and they're just saying, no, we're going to do this better from now on. And I, I haven't seen the conversation change this quickly ever. Um, but it does look like something's happening. So that, that gets me excited. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Sheila, for joining us today. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. We were so grateful that Sheila took the time to have a real and honest conversation with us. As you probably heard, this is a hot topic for us. There are so many things that we are still learning and coming to understand. But this helped bring clarity to how much the topic of sex affects people. We hope you are able to learn something new and can begin to have healthy conversations with people in your world. If you have any questions or comments on this episode, or need further clarification on anything you've heard, please don't hesitate to reach out in person or contact us at activelistening.life at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram and reviews on iTunes are always welcome. We've also included notes from Sheila's books and her social media in our show notes, so you can go there to find out more information on the things that you've heard in today's show. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.